Good evening, everyone. Is the uh, microphone okay? Good. Um, thank you, Sarah, for your uh, introduction. Thank you, everyone, for being here. It's really nice to be here. Uh, I very much appreciate uh, the welcome that you've shown me. Um, and I, I want to reciprocate just by saying, uh, so our little group of metal mind, uh, I, I wish it were a metal view, <laughs> but we call, call it metal mind, um, uh, is in a garage behind our house. Uh, and Jean, my wife, will be here. <laughs> she was here. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so it's just a, a little Zendo and Qigong studio we have behind our house in the Elmwood uh, area. And just as you've welcomed me here, you're all welcome to come there. Um, I originally, uh, my, my desire in starting it was to give people more opportunities for sitting zazen, really. And originally, Jim and I had talked a bit about, well, is there any way we could set things up so that there'd be a way where people could sit zazen every morning and every evening? And uh, the short answer to that is no, not really. It's a little hard to get it set up logistically in terms of spaces and, and energies and whatnot. Uh, but I kind of grew up in Berkeley Zen Center where that was available and it was really wonderful. And uh, whether it's via Zoom or on your own or, I mean, Gene and I sit every morning although our center's not open every morning. <laughs> um, it's just wonderful to, to have a, a practice where you meditate every day and do Qigong every day. So uh, we meet uh, Monday mornings from 7 to 8, uh, and Tuesday evening, so 7 to 8 is basically Zazen brief service, little work, uh, so just an hour. And then Tuesday evening, we meet from 7 to 9. I have not posted our uh, the address of the place on the website because it is behind our house and uh, want to keep some kind of security. Uh, but if any of you want to know where it is, uh, Larry knows, Jim knows, Oscar knows, I mean... Uh, Contact me. Did you say Tuesday? Tuesday evenings. Yeah. I, I did check out your website. And it said Wednesday evenings. Yeah. Yes, I haven't changed it yet. We just changed <laughs> it, and Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. So on Tuesday nights we sit and uh, we do a little bit of qigong, and then we'll read something. Right now we're reading from Joko Beck's book Ordinary Wonder. Uh, Joko Beck being founder of Ordinary Mind. So most of my practice has been with uh, Soto Zen, 
I'm very grateful to my teacher, Sojin, Mel Weitzman. But at a certain point, I started gravitating a bit towards uh, ordinary minds and for various reasons, not because I have any problem with social Zen, but there were certain aspects of a ordinary mind Zen which attracted me. And some people consider ordinary mind Zen an offshoot of Soto Zen, and some people don't. And within ordinary mind Zen, none of us can decide <laughs> whether we're an offshoot of Soto or not. But uh, we're certainly Soto friendly. And if you go to most ordinary mind places, uh, Karen Trezano's place, Barry Madgett's place, Diane Rosetto's, well, Diane's uh, retired, uh, Dan Birnbaum's place in Oakland, and you were to go to a session, it would look like a Soto session, but a little more casual. Um, now, so what's the difference? There's a saying by Dogen that I really, really like. Um, he says, although not one, not different. Although not different, not the same. And no, although not the same, not many. <laughs> you can uh, chew on that one for a while, but... Um, if you were to bring me the the uh, the two, and don't you don't need to do this, but if you were to bring me the two Donna baskets, for example, well, they're two different baskets, but at the end of this evening, any money you put into my basket, I'm going to put into the uh, Dharma Center's uh, basket, because part of my particular feeling about lay Zen teachers is we're lay people. We've had jobs, we support ourselves, and we shouldn't get paid for teaching the Dharma. Most of my lay Zen teacher colleagues don't agree with me, <laughs> but I feel rather strongly about that, and so I donate anything because I feel that priests like Jim, Dorley, uh, who are devoting their lives to the Dharma, should be compensated for it. So there's a slight, same, different, who knows. But I thought I'd talk a little bit about um, some of the flavors of uh, ordinary mindset. And it's called ordinary mind because well, there's a Taoist, uh, the Tao Te Ching, there's a beautiful uh, verse in it which goes, our beginningless ancestors skilled in practicing the way, deeply ordinary, common as dirt. So I don't even like to describe them. That's a kind of different... Uh, attitude than in Soto where we chant the names of our ancestors, right? They're both good. It's very important, I feel, 
to honor our ancestors. And it's important to realize they were people like us. They had all the same problems. <laughs> um, so same different... Uh, Diane Rossetto, my friend, uh, actually uh, started learning. She was ordained as a priest by Mel, and I met her at uh, one of Mel's 75th or 50th or one of those birthday parties. And when I learned that she had started with Mel, I I said, uh, oh, why didn't you continue with Sojin? And she said, I loved Sojin and I learned a lot and I really loved the Soto practice, but uh, one day Joko Beck came to have a conference with some of the other women in uh, uh, the Zen circles. And I went into the kitchen of the house where it was happening and she said, oh, hi, I'm Joko Beck. And she was so ordinary. You know, there, there was, it was like meeting anyone else. And if you ever met Mel, uh, Mel had a, a way about him. Reb Anderson has a way about him. I mean, you sort of feel like you're in the presence of someone. And that's really cool, right? And Joko said, nope. <laughs> Just another person here. And Diane really liked that. So uh, in Zen, we often say nothing special. And we have this little secret (laughs) attachment to, yeah, but it's really something special, right? (laughs) And in ordinary minds, then we go, you know, it's really nothing special. (laughs) Honest. (laughs) Which is true of enlightenment. Which is true of our practice. Uh, It's just we're all trying to live the best life we can. And one of the the reasons, I think, that I I got into ordinary mindset was over the past 10 years or so, I've kind of had my nose rubbed into the nothing specialness of my life in that... um, I am a Qigong teacher, I am a Zen teacher, and I got sick. And I know all kinds of ways of breathing and breathing techniques. And something happened about 10 years ago, and I couldn't breathe without coughing for years. And um, that was interesting. And actually, I've spoken with a number of Zen teachers who say, just breathe. And I say, there's a lot of people who can't do that. And what do you do when you can't breathe? When going to the breath makes you feel worse. So I had to deal with that for a while. And then I I fell, and I've always had chronic pain. uh, But this was something different, and I was in agony, and I couldn't sit. And I really like sitting. And I was, I've always said, you know, sitting full lotus, it's something I started doing when I was 20 years old or so. And I always said, there's nothing special about it. It's just the most comfortable way of sitting. 
which is true. It, it really is. But until I couldn't do it, I didn't realize that I have a little bit of pride. <laughs> oh, I can sit in full lotus, look at me. <laughs> and I had to let go of that. And now I sometimes use a, a brace for various reasons. And then after, uh, after I got through the three or four years of pain, then now I have another illness that uh, I'm dealing with. And it's frustrating because I'd really like to devote more time to the Dharma, to hiking, to my family, and the illness gets in the way. So, um, very ordinary body, very ordinary mind, And how do I deal with that? And especially, how do I deal with illness? So there's a koan. Health and sickness complete each other. The whole world is medicine. What is your original self? So when we encounter these glitches, any of you ever experience a glitch in your practice? <laughs> Do you ever find, oh, my mind's wandering more than I want it to? Or, oh, I'm feeling a little restless. Or, I meant to sit today, but I didn't sit. Little glitches? Maybe none of you experience glitches. But I do. When you experience, when I experience a glitch, what to do with that? And... One of the ways that I deal with that is turning to some of the aspects of ordinary mind Zen. So what are some of the flavors of ordinary mind Zen which are different? I, I wrote down a few here. Oh, well, uh, we're a lay practice. We don't have... Priests, even though some some of our members, like Diane, was ordained as a priest, but we're kind of committed to this is an everyday kind of thing wherever you go. So that's one thing. Um, I really value my Soto friends and Dharma friends who maintain the forms. I I bow to Jim and to all of you for maintaining the Soto forms. And that gives me the freedom in ordinary mind to play around with them a little bit more. And we're a little looser on the forms. And we fiddle with the language a little bit. I'll come back to that. Um, We do the precepts a little bit differently. Um, In some Soto Zen uh, forms you, you really you need permission to, to, to do the precepts you have to sew a rakasu um, I'll offer the precepts to anybody who wants to take the precepts well I'll offer an opportunity to participate in a program for studying the precepts to anybody who wants to they have to complete the program they don't have to sew a rakasu I recommend it um, 
but they don't have to. They can buy one. They do have to go through about a year and a half program where we study one precept a month, perhaps, one precept every two or three months. And part of that is writing your own version of the precept, a precept that you can really live by. And it's, it's interesting when people do that. Now, mind you, in some Soto Zen groups, they do the same thing. I, I don't know if, 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 if you do that here, write it in your own words, but you know, I'll insist on that with my students. And so I do it myself. And one of the things that I also do is I'll take things like the vows, the four vows, and go, okay, how can I actually live with that? So you all know the, the four vows are usually stated something like, uh, beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them, or I vow to save them, perhaps, in, in some sanghas. Uh, delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is, it's often said, unsurpassable. I prefer unfathomable. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, unfathomable. I vow to become it. And we use a version like that when we uh, say it all together. But I have my own personal version. And recently, I started um, revisiting the version that I made for myself uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And I'll, I think why I started revisiting it will become clear as I go along. Um, well, I'll just say now, Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. So I'd be sitting and feeling sick or having pain or having difficulties and I'd go, well, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. How do I save this? (laughs) How do I save myself right now, this moment? I mean, hey, this Buddhism, it's supposed to release us from suffering, right? (laughs) but I'm not feeling so good. And so it's a very practical question. And one of the things which happens, I think no matter what your practice is, whether it's Theravadan or Zen or whatnot, is the longer you practice, you start to realize everything we encounter is a being needing saving. Every thought we have is a being. Every feeling, every sensation we have is a being. So when we sit zazen and a thought comes up, usually we say, well, let go. That's good. Why? Why should you let go? Is that saving the thought? Is that saving you? Is that saving all beings? How does that work? I mean, these are fundamental existential questions. So when I first uh, revised that um, 
vow for myself. And I should mention, I start every morning by saying those vows. I, I do it before I eat breakfast, which is a good trigger for me. Um, and I still use beings are numberless, I vow to say them. But when I first started doing it, the first vow became, beings are not numbers. My vow is touching all in each. Well, why? Um, Our minds tend to turn everything we encounter into objects. As soon as we start counting, there's a thing there. And uh, as soon as we start counting and turning things into objects, we lose the, the reality of the changing, empty, flowing, dynamic, what is this? And I personally think that uh, much of the suffering in our world right now is that everyone feels like they're being treated like a number. Have you ever felt that way? You know, I mean, recently I had to call... Uh, Kaiser for uh, <laughs> an appointment and the first thing you do is what is your medical record number? Press one for this, press three for this, plus, you know, and where are you in all this? Um, and I didn't want to treat people as numbers. Do you ever say to yourself, during a zazen, oh, I have a lot of thoughts. If you say that to yourself, you're counting your thoughts and you're treating them as something that you should have less of or more of. Maybe you should have more wholesome thoughts. But the thoughts are no longer beings. How do we approach how do we bring our being to the being that faces us? Um, beings are numberless, so beings are not numbers. And then I vow to save them. I had troubles with that because, and this is, Joko has a, a wonderful phrase, she says, So practice is basically playing with the problem of the self. So we all know there's no self. And we all know we feel like, yeah, but (laughs) I sure feel like I have a self. (laughs) So how do we deal with that? And one of the things which happens when you take vows and perhaps a number of you have experienced this is the vow changes you. When you, especially in front of other people, when you make a vow, something feels different. And so the vow has its, is a being of its, of its own. It has its own life. 
And we're in some ways vehicles for our vows. So at one point I was going to go, beings are numberless, this vow is saving all beings. And I went, uh, got to admit there's an I in there, <laughs> that I have to participate in it. And in order to take responsibility for it, I changed the wording to say, um, beings are not numbers, my vow is, and then get to the next point, my vow is doing X. So the vow is doing its work through me and I'm realizing myself through the vow and we, it's like this, right? Two arrows meeting in midair all the time, all the time. So uh, we've been, Jim has been uh, leading us in a study of the Lankavatara Sutra and uh, one of the issues which comes up is the issue of consciousness. And there's so many different Buddhist works about consciousness. And one of the problems we run into is we think, I am conscious. And we're not even sure what consciousness is, but we're pretty sure that I am conscious. <laughs> Actually, don't be so sure. Um, well, when we're conscious of something and the mind turns something into an object, actually there's a section where Dogen says that's not the mind of Buddhas and patriarchs and, and uh, matriarchs and ancestors. Um, the mind can, Dogen says, the mind can turn anything into an object and that's not our practice. Our practice is, well, what is our practice? So the first vow is, what's my practice? What's our practice? Well, Buddha said, our practice is release from suffering. That's what it's about. Releasing all beings from suffering, which includes me, which includes every thought, every feeling, every difficulty that I have. And here's the part which isn't quite as enticing, releasing all of our pleasures from suffering. <laughs> There's suffering within pleasure as well. Sorry, but it's true. So releasing all from suffering, liberating all beings. My friend Alan Sanaki likes to say, if it's not about liberation, what are we doing? So my vow is well, doing what? If I say, I vow to do such and such, that puts it off in the future. I'm going to do that someday. Um, and one of the things that I treasure about Zen is it says, now, don't wait. Right now. So how do you actualize, how do we actualize our vow right now? So instead of saying I vow to, I'll say my vow is liberating. 
Well, the Buddha said, I am, was, and will be enlightened together with all beings, right? That's actually how it works. <laughs> Enlightenment's not some far off thing. It's, it's uh, in the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, we say, no coming, no going, no arising, no um, dropping. Um, it's timeless. It's ever. It's always, was, will be, is. How do we enter that vividness of being? And some of our suffering is losing touch with that vividness, with that um, being together. So rather than put it off to the future, it's my vow is what? Saving all beings, awakening with all beings, uh, releasing, letting go. How about letting be? We, we say we need to let go of our attachments, right? The practice is basically steering free of grasping or pushing away. And in order to do that, we need to let go of anything we're attached to, both aversion and attachment. Well, letting go really means letting be. There's a beautiful Taoist phrase, just assist the self-becoming of all beings. How do we assist the self-becoming of all beings? Um, so lately, instead of um, letting be, I've been thinking of releasing whatever I encounter, but releasing in the sense of real easing, helping whatever I encounter feel the, the true ease of um, the truth of the Dharma. Suzuki Roshi's uh, son, Hoitsu Roshi, I, I have friends who've visited with him, and he says, if you visit with me, you only have to, there's only one thing I insist on. When you walk through the town, you have to be happy. I mean, all the villagers are supporting us, and if you don't look happy, <laughs> the donations will dry up. <laughs> and, you know, we, we recite the Metta Sutta, may all beings be happy right now, right here, no matter what's happening in the midst of suffering, finding release. So what are we saving all beings from, from suffering? From delusion. What's the delusion? The basic delusion is I'm separate from everything else. But the other delusion is I'm merged with everything else. Or one delusion is uh, I'm worthless. Joko Beck's talking about that in what we're reading 
And a lot of people have this deep-seated feeling of, really, I'm worthless. And then other people have this feeling of, actually, I'm the one. (laughs) Everyone else is worthless. So those are both delusions. The whole notion of worthiness and lack of worth, delusion. How about liberation from birth and death? The basic delusion is things either are or are not. And that's a delusion. Everything is, both is and is not. Which is actually where we um, start to come to the release from suffering. So as I've been working on this vow, I've been thinking, so my vow is what? Streaming? Coursing? I kind of like the word coursing. It's got this feeling and, you know, course, the way. It's weighing. It's being peace. It's piecing together. Uh, Alan Sinaki likes to say mindfulness is basically taking the scattered pieces of awareness and reassembling them in wholeness. I really like that definition of, of mindfulness. Uh, taking the scattered pieces of our awareness and reassembling them and recollecting them, because there's a remembrance aspect, remembrance of the Dharma, recollecting them in wholeness. Um, I've, I kind of like the word touching because, you know, in our mudra, is, is this thumb touching or being touched? Is it one or two? Not one, not two. To, to experience the liberation of the mudra is one way of, one gateway one way of opening the door of liberation. I, I've spent one year of meditation just staying with the mudra, and it, it was really quite wonderful, and I still come back to it uh, frequently when I'm having difficulties. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll meditate using hearing rather than, often in Zen we talk about seeing, but when we hear, uh, Rollin uh, wrote me recently saying, oh, well, you know, sometimes when I hear music, there's this blending of my experience and myself and the sound and the music and that blending where you're not separate but not merged. Uh, sitting with hearing, I think, can be really quite wonderful. Um, so I like touching. I've considered uh, welcoming. My vow is welcoming all that I encounter. I have a friend who her practice is just saying welcome to whatever she encounters. Um, but I, for, for now, and I haven't quite decided yet, at the moment uh, I'm, I'm saying beings are not numbers. My vow is touching and I used to say is touching all in each. And I think I had it 
reversed and a little wrong because I wanted to see in, in each person the Buddha and, and see the, the, the light of illumination and you can and you do but when people are suffering just seeing that in them doesn't really help I think what we need to do is instead of touching all in each is touching each with all of, touch, of finding that experience of wholesomeness and connectedness that we all know it, it's our original self it's our basis of somehow connecting that and bringing that to whoever we're facing, to whatever we're facing. Um, and I kind of like touching uh, each with all because it gives me an incentive to bring my whole self, to bring all of me to here and now. And this might sound overly philosophical, but you know, I'll be sitting and I'll have some physical, medical difficulty. And uh, there's a way of first noticing all the thoughts and the aversions and the blah, 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 and being with it and going, okay, yeah. And then just being there. And then in the Gama Sutra, it talks about hearing what you can't hear being aware of what you can't be aware of, touching the inconceivable, that somehow we kind of reach for it. And if I'm having, like right now, I'm having uh, you know, some pain in my knees, to reach for my back and my tongue and the smile on Jim's face and the sound of the air conditioner and bring that all to the knee. And the knee sort of goes, oh, oh, (laughs) that's not so bad. (laughs) That's not so bad. Your smiles help my knee. See, we vow to awaken with everyone right now you are saving me from suffering. And I'm doing my best to save you from suffering. (laughs) That's what we're doing. And we think, oh, I'm sitting here listening to a lecture or, oh, I'm using these words. But this is what the Buddha Dharma is, which is so wonderful. So... I think I'd like to end here with reading a verse from uh, the Tao Te Ching, which kind of gets at this from a different angle. And Qigong is a Taoist practice. um, And Zen, all of the Chan teachers in China uh, in the Tang Dynasty knew the Tao. This was in their blood. So I'll read you verse 8 because I think it's it's a version of um, 
our vow. Oops, before I read it, I want to say one other thing, which is, you know, the vows are a circle. We vow to save all beings. Well, what do we save them from? We save them from delusion. And the way we save them from delusion is by realizing that every delusion is a Dharma gate. And once we've found the delusion is a Dharma gate and we enter the Karma gate, well, there we are being a Buddha. And Buddha says, I vow to save all beings. And it just goes round and round and round and round. This is turning the wheel of the Dharma. It's kind of cool. So the way we, the way we release from suffering is realizing suffering is an illusion, but it's a very real illusion. Doesn't mean it's unreal. It means we have an incomplete view of it. So, verse eight. Truly good people are like water, bringing help to all without picking and choosing not contending, not striving, not competing, going places others avoid, flowing like the way, rooted in earth, minds like deep pools, helping with kindness, sincerity speaking, governing with peace, working with skill, moving with time, no contention, no fault. So maybe you have some question or reflection. Thank you, Bob. Um, lately, I do hear a lot of people playing around with the four vows and uh, putting out different uh, uh, versions. And uh, I, I actually never know what to expect next from my teacher <laughs> because he's always got a new uh, a version. Uh, and also, I know uh, Miosan who comes and visits us. Uh, Regularly, uh, I've noticed he is. Uh, I think I'm hearing him say, uh, "Beings are numberless. We bow mm-hmm. to save them." Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hear. I hear. I think I'm hearing him saying "we" mm-hmm. uh, when he comes on the television set there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other. Uh, so I, I like your. You know, this this idea you're saying of you know that you. You're playing with them, and you've been playing, you know, with alternative formulations or uh, conceptions of the vows. Uh, and uh, this, the the I think the 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 one about saving is, you know, it's it's it it hits our ears wrong somehow in this culture, um, and yet it's. It's such a an essential um, 
such an essential uh, I don't know background or foreground or of 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 uh, of the whole um, thrust or ethos of Buddhism. I think you know. So okay. it's it's like it's just, as they say, it is a soteriological religion. <laughs> right. Yes, it's it's a religion about. Uh, but but freeing you know freeing is also I think a a a, a reasonable synonym that we can use. Though mm-hmm. uh, I'll just share that uh, my teacher is lately saying quite a few times, um, beings are numberless. We vow to be intimate with them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Delusions are inexhaustible. We vow to be intimate with yes. them. Yes. Uh, and so forth. And he keeps going yes. back to that. Yes. Uh, so but that that's a that's a long time favoring theme of his yes. to, to favor that kind of language so uh, yeah thank you for bringing up yeah. playing with and you know reconsidering these these vows thank you it's um, I was struck uh, after the uh, last study of the Lankavatara, how you had said, I think Rollin or someone had said, so uh, the waves of water. And I, I think he said, and, but, no, no, he, he had said the water is waves. It, you pointed to the wave itself. Well, <laughs> is some verse or something. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah the, the wave itself, that, that pesky little thought, <laughs> that's it. And being intimate with that delusion, once we take the vows, I, I don't like to say seriously, because we can have fun with them, you know. But once we say, hey, this is what my life's about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> now what? <laughs> I, I think all of us. You know, play with it, and it's it's really good to have one form that we all say together. I mean that that's very important. But it's again, it's like not same, not different, not yourself, not just mushed with everyone, both and. So, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Bob. That was a very wide-ranging talk. Um, thank you very much. I, I like the idea, uh, or I, um, so one of the uh, milestones of my practice was the realization that um, the being that needed saving was the one cl- closest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and most most available for being saved. Um, and I like the idea uh, of of uh, I vow to liberate them. I like the idea of liberation because uh, it seems to me that um, we are liberating beings with their feelings, thoughts, other you know. Uh, all dharmas uh, by letting them be, as you say. Um, 
by, by not cutting them off uh, from the rest of reality, um, by objectifying them. Um, there's a feeling of liberation in that, of release, of coming back home. Um, so thank you very much for, for explaining it. I don't know that I've explained anything. <laughs> I'm just sharing my... Uh, Confused attempts to come to terms with it. <laughs> what I mean. Yeah. Well, I'm still learning how to accept, you know, and be, you know, one with the teachings that don't reach me, you know, like there's, uh, you know, so I'll just be honest and say, uh, this brings up questions of like a 2,500 year tradition that somehow gets lost from the myriad ways we change it to suit our mm-hmm. personal, uh, you know, visions. Um, what is that line? Hearing the words, understand the meaning. Don't set up standards of your own. Do you? Do you? Do you? Bow in a different manner. So, you know, bowing is an example of, uh, you know, letting go of the personal and just surrendering to the... So, anyway, I mean, I'm, I, I, I try to be open, but I recognize within myself the, uh, the resistance to uh, what you're saying. But, mm-hmm. uh, so, what do you think? <laughs> Well, the um, the tension of making it relevant to our times and our language and honoring the roots, um, the different, as we say in the Sandokai, the different leaves come from the same root. So we want to be careful about the changes, and I would... Uh, certainly not change it for the group. But you you used bowing as an example. So bowing is actually a very uh, deep qigong. But in order to bow, you can only bow in your body. And so if you try to bow like Sarah or like Jim, it won't be the right bow. You have to find where your centers are, how far your body can go, and bow completely in a way which may or may not fit the prescribed form. So there's no getting away from the fact that uh, forms are always changing. How to say, well, let's 
let's not change too quickly. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's not leave it uh, completely ritualized. Yes, indeed. I mean, ritual has a power. You know, so many people have said these words in this way. But of course, when we say, uh, well, the Jewel Mirror Samadhi we read today, there's a translation study of it that was done at Tassajara where you hear Reb and Mel and Kaz and a whole bunch of people weigh in on, well, this character you could translate this way, well, that way, well. And uh, there's many different translations and Zen Center in San Francisco changes the words. Uh, every now and then, usually after five years or so of talking about it and looking at it and thinking about it, uh, uh, Mio has, has been saying we, and in our uh, uh, Metal Mind Sangha, we recently decided as a Sangha in the Metta Sutra to say, uh, may we be generous upright and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. May we not be, you know. Um, as long as it's done, well, I'll say one other thing. Uh, I heard a presentation recently by Rebecca Nie, a young woman who is uh, transmitted in the Korean tradition, who's also a linguist and uh, is at Stanford, and she gave a talk on the uh, language of the sutras and how for a long time we thought that the Sanskrit was as close as you could get to Buddha's words. She said, that's not true. That the Buddha, when he taught, people said to him, oh, we re- these are really difficult uh, ideas. Let's put it in Sanskrit so that people can get it. And he said, No. He said, don't write them down and don't use fancy language. Use whatever the language is of the people that you're with. And in fact, it turns out that some of the oldest versions of the uh, what used to be called the Pali Sutras uh, come from Afghanistan and from Nepal. And it's not at all clear, you know, which were the original, original and what the tradition was. So, you know, traditions change. Uh, I think communing with the source and communing with the process, treasure the pathways and enjoy the road, to paraphrase the uh, Jewel Mirror Samadhi, is a pretty good way of approaching all of these. Yes, basically. <laughs> Jody. Um, I really like well, the whole talk. Thank you for that. Jody, if you can't hear, she could close the Oh, is this better? Yes. Sorry. I was just thanking you for the talk. Um, I was really struck by the idea that. Um, our ideas, our beings, our feelings, our beings, you know, that kind of thing. I've never heard that before. And I was 
trying to understand that in relationship to what is a sentient being. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, big topic. Lots of debate about this. My personal view is that everything is sentient. That sentience is the substratum. And every once in a while I get, I mean, even during Zazen, there'll be the sense of, wow, that RNA is just going, ah, I'm twisting, I'm turning, I'm going through the cytoplasm. The problem is, we think, well, we're sentient beings, separate from everything. But in the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, there's a key phrase, you are not it, it actually is you. So we think, I have this thought. So I'm a sentient being and I have this thought. But the thoughts are who we are. The feelings are who we are. We arise together with them. So you start to get this sense of being a collection, being an ecology, and um, is a tree sentient? I sure think so. How about the soil? It's just see things. Um, I personally think you, you can kind of this this gets into Qigong actually where you start feeling the energies from things around you and you can perceive I mean this has good chi this stand Some whoever did this went with the grain of the wood and that person's life is in here and the wood's life is in here, and the water, and the rain, and Thich Nhat Hanh does this kind of thing. So it's it's just so interpenetrating, sentient, conscious. You know, in a way it doesn't matter to me except to realize it's good to treat everything I encounter with respect. Just respect and kindness. And the more I can do that, the odd thing is, the more that I do that, the better I feel. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, there's volumes and volumes written about this. I'm not sure what sentience is, but I I know that we're all in this together. Sarah, I noticed you were looking at your watch and I don't have a no, clock, so I don't know how we're doing on time. I you your clock. It's yeah. exactly 9 o'clock. Ah. Well. Shall we? Mm-hmm.